Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hello, I'm Janet Miranda, the Executive Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to our program. Well, let's think about something for a minute, okay? Something none of us are ever prepared for, but suddenly someone you love gets a diagnosis of some sort of ailment that you know is going to be very limiting. They're going to need a lot of care and they might be getting to maybe in a few months or six months or a year pass away because of the diagnosis from the doctor. And then options begin to open up. The word hospice is bantered around and treatment plans and in a facility or at home. And suddenly You love this person so much. You want to do everything possible to make them happy, to give them the best of care. And suddenly you're thrust into the role of caregiver. Well, today that's what we're going to talk about, being a caregiver. I personally can share stories with you, but joining me is a very, very dear friend of mine, someone who has been in the media and in the writing profession for decades, Okay, she originally uh, worked for a big Catholic paper up in Philadelphia. She now is the director of communications for the Eternal Word Television Network, founded by Mother Angelica, also famously known as EWTN. So joining me today on our program is Michelle Johnson. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Janet. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, and of course, we're going to talk today, both you and I have had the experience of being caregivers, which as we know, is very, uh, well, you love that person very much. You want to do everything possible. It's very strenuous, exhausting. And sometimes you feel like you're all alone. And I'm going to hold this up because I want everyone to know that Michelle has written this book from her own personal experience. And we're going to get into the the depth uh, of that book in a minute. But what I'd like you to do, Michelle, is just share for everyone. um, You know, in your case, it was a caregiver for your husband. Uh, Stu, and tell us just a little bit about that process from the time like you first found out the path you were going to be on, and then the time when you had to make that the decisions and where you were thrust into this role. Well, you know, Janet, I had had the experience of my dad um, dying suddenly, um, but I had never, and I would eventually have the experience of my sister dying of cancer and of my mom dying of dementia. But this, you know, my husband was so unexpected and so horrifying to me. Um, It was, it just came out of the blue. And he was first diagnosed with a small, what he thought was a bone bruise on the bottom of his foot. And, you know, he went to the doctor. First, he just put a Band-Aid on it. You know what I mean? He thought it would go away and it didn't. So he ends up going to the doctor and um, he had... (laughs) He had been a very big athlete his whole life, but as he was working and getting into things, he started gaining weight. And so he was no longer the physical specimen he was when he was younger. So they started blaming everything on his weight. Oh, it's, you know, you're just, it's a non-healing ulcerated pressure wound. And so they had him, you know, uh, get in a wheelchair at one point. I mean, he had a, a walking cast. He had all sorts of things. It was like, get that pressure off the foot and it will heal. Well, it didn't. It just got worse and worse and worse. And 
finally, he was in the office of uh, one of our doctors and there was a nurse there and the doctor came out and said, how's the foot stew? And he said, explained. And a nurse sitting there said, you know, you should go see my doctors. And they were at, we had been to University of Pennsylvania and Hahnemann and all these big, big hospitals in Pennsylvania. But this was a little, little hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. Okay. I mean, nothing, no. And so he went to see these, these young doctors and they said, you're too young for this Stu. you know, come on in. We're just going to do a debriding, which is, you know, they take the skin off and we'll get the fresh skin. You know, it's, it's, it, it's not as a minor procedure. It's going to be okay. So I was so convinced. We thought it was such a big thing. I went to work that day. I, you know, he said, honey, I know you have a big day. Just do that. You can come pick me up when it's over. It's no big deal. Well, those doctors did the one thing that none of the other doctors did. They biopsied the wound. And that's when they found out it was cancer. And wow. I was so shocked when he called me. because And he calls me like, oh, hi, hon. You know, how's it going? And, he's, and he, because he was so shocked, he just blurted it out. It's cancer. And I hung, I hung up the phone. And Janet, you wouldn't even believe it. Uh, it was like lunchtime, and I, 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 I got from my desk. I walked into the lunchroom. I microwaved meal. I came back to the my desk. I sat down, and it wasn't until I started to eat that I was like, "What am I doing?" I mean, I was in that much shock. You, you know what I'm saying? And, right. and I just, I, I was, I didn't know what I was doing. And I ran out to the car. I was crying. I was just, it was awful. And the entire way to the hospital, I cried because to me, that meant he was going to die. And little did I know. Um, and thank God. I mean, I got there just as the doctors were coming in. And um, my husband was, he was holding my hand. He was almost crushing it. You know what I mean? He was just so, he was so scared. And they said, look, you know, we don't have the resources here to deal with this. So you're going to want to find somebody. Uh, and they kind of cut us loose. And at the same time, they had told us it was very deep. It was like an inch. It was it was off the scales in ter terms of health because they'd misdiagnosed it for a year. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, we had a long weekend to just sit and be in a panic about it. And, you know, I tell this story and this is sort of setting it up in the beginning of the book, you know, where, um, you know, I had had a whole experience faith wise and um, ended up. Um, becoming a secular Carmelite. And I know the Lord was preparing me for what was about to happen. Um, and I couldn't even pray. I mean, I was just, I was, my hands were like ice. I just was in in a panic. Yeah. Just, so all I could do was go, please, God, please, God. You know, it just, yeah. And so one night I hadn't, I wasn't sleeping. Suddenly I, I finally fell asleep. I was exhausted. And I don't even know how long I was asleep. And I woke up and I sat straight up in bed and I said a prayer that I know came from the Holy Spirit because this is not how I've ever prayed in my entire life. And I just sat up and I went, Father. And all of a sudden I felt what was like, it was like a ball of energy pushing up against my arm. And I just went, Father, fetch you, come. And honey, it just, uh, so all I can tell you is I, I had this like explosion of joy <clears throat> and I just leaned back. I went to sleep. If 
for the first time. And when I woke up, everything changed because I could handle it. And right. yeah. So what, what happened next? I mean, what kind of cancer was it? And how long was this illness that it went on for? Melanoma. It was the first of three bouts of cancer that he would have over eight years. Wow. Over those years, he not only had, he had that, he had leukemia. And then when they cured that, they basically zeroed out his immune system and the melanoma came roaring back. And over that time, he would um, have his leg amputated and he would become a quadriplegic. So a lot happened. And, wow. you know, I, and he died. And, you know, I, I want people to know, I mean, the problem with what's happening in our world right now is that so many people think, well, you know, it's all going to be, you should end it because it's just going to all be horrible from then on. Because what I described to you was terrible. You know what I mean? What, what happened was right. terrible. But so many incredible things happened during those eight years. We got so much closer. Our love got so much stronger. You, when you fight a battle together, it's like you know soldiers in a foxhole or something. You know what I mean? Or the right. NASA astronauts who there's a team. You know, you, you your love gets stronger, and you know the things. Your good times are not over. And I wanted to write this book because I wanted people to understand what it's like to go through it, to fight the battle, to to have someone like hold your hand, like to think through all the various things. Cause I tried to put in there everything. I did not sugarcoat anything, but you'll see in there, there's chapters about, you know, the, the joy that we had, the fun times that we had, the conversations we had at one point though, where he had a surgery on the back of his neck because he was losing his ability to move. And this doctor had said he could fix him. And supposedly the surgery went well. And so we were happy because we thought he was going to get better. Right. And we were in the atrium of a hospital and we were by ourselves for the first time. You know, there was no one around. And that day, married couples, usually after a while, you know, you've been married a long time. You feel like you've heard your loved one's stories, right? You know them all. Well, my husband had been aboard a uh, ship when he, he was in the Navy, when in his younger years, 10 years. And it was a nuclear powered ship, which he couldn't tell me at the time, but you know, it had been decommissioned at that point and you know, things were, so he could reveal things he hadn't revealed in the past. And he told me some stories about things that he had done on that ship that were fascinating to me. I mean, one of them was really amazing. His, he was in a, a frigate that was, and there was a carrier in the middle, right? And the, the frigates are protecting the carrier. And they announced that they were going to, I'm saying this not in nautical terms, I'm saying this in layman's terms, right? The carrier announced that they were going to turn right, okay? That's not how you say it. But, um, and my husband, who grew up on boats, um, was up on the deck, fortunately, and he was staring at the ship. And he said to the captain, they're not turning right, they're turning left. And the captain looked at him, he's like, are you, are you sure? And he said, yes, sir. And so uh, in the book, it's actually kind of funny, Jen. And I actually put the WTF, you know what I mean? That's how they talk. Like, you know, what the heck I'll say, you know what I mean? And he, he says that to the, um, the guys on the other ship. And I mean, he averted a disaster because afterwards the captain gave him his um, bars, you know what I mean? We, early for, because he just was, he saved the ship. I mean, this, they could have all died. I mean, well, 
Anyway, I didn't know that. And I mean, I wouldn't have known that. You know what I'm saying? If you didn't spend that time together, right? right. So, but but, you know, Michelle, you just said this was an eight year period, but he wasn't really incapacitated in the first few years, right, of this illness as they were dealing with the cancer, dealing with the cancer, dealing with the cancer. At what, how many years in the course of that eight, like near the end, did it get to the point where you had to, like, he came home and, and the, you know, okay, this is it, you know, he's going to die soon. And, and now you became the ultimate caregiver in that, that final stretch. Like how, how much of time was that? I mean, that was be a year to two years, somewhere in there, year, year and a half. Um, he, I mean, Janet, he was losing things little by little by little because right. when you, yeah. be, because the, it was in his leg, right? The cancer started to eat up his leg. I mean, there was, the cancer was everywhere and all the way up his leg and he had to wrap it and it was, you know, oozing and awful. And so, and, and because they had removed 26 uh, lymph nodes from his groin in an attempt to get it under control, his legs swelled up to like three times its normal size. So that happened really early on. And, you know, so that was the, one of the first big things. And, you know, I remember, and, and this is part of what I talk about in the book. Um, you know, I was standing outside his room and I knew I had to go in and wrap it. And humanly, I didn't want to do it. Right. And I remember standing there and again, see, this is where God kept coming in. God, God, God. I just got the grace again, not the way I normally pray. And I just threw it up there. Divine physician, help me. And honey, it was like immediately I got the grace and I just went right. and I it. said, you know, honey, let's do this. And he was like, I'm so sorry. I have to put you through this. And I was like, it's not a problem. And it wasn't, you know, at that moment, it wasn't. Right. Thanks be to God. Yeah. I'm going to remind everyone we're talking to Michelle Johnson and the book is walking the way of the cross for caregivers. Uh, and this is, I endorse the book, of course, as being a caregiver for multiple family members. I, and I know I said, I wish I had had this as a, a something to spiritually enrich me when you're going through um, <clears throat> the hard times. I mean, I can remember being a care, well, I was a caregiver helping with my father-in-law, uh, then eventually my mother-in-law, uh, my brother and my mother. I mean, and, and, um, <clears throat> and my dad. And <clears throat> the joke of the family is they always die on my watch. <laughs> it's like, because, uh, you know, sometimes if you're lucky enough, you have another family member to, to kind of alternate with you. But I always seem to be the one that they die <laughs> when I'm holding Well, their you were the one caring for them, Janet. So that's going to be what happens. <laughs> you know, so the joke is if if you really need to go out of your misery and you've been suffering enough, just call Janet to come and pray by your bedside because then you, the Lord will take you. Don't worry. She's got a good track record. <laughs> you know, it's sad, but it's true. And what you're talking about there, like, oh my gosh, I got to go in and do that. I'm sure a lot of people who have been caregivers can, can understand that because the care that when you take the responsibility to say, no, I don't want my loved one, you know, 
dying their last few months or whatever in a hospital or a hospice or with other people all around them and the, and the noises and the machines. No, I'll bring them home and we'll do what we have to do. You know, we'll make it happen, but make it happen. Oh my goodness. What the medical profession expects us lay people to do without not one nursing course is just mind boggling. Right. So I can relate when you said, Oh, I got to go do that now because I can think of a whole long list of things that <clears throat> for all the different people we had to do. Um, I'll never forget <clears throat> with my brother, he was on these IV treatments yeah. and they expect you <laughs> to change the IV. Like the nurse comes in in a hospital and she does it and oh, how nice, click, click. But then the critical part is when you have to get that port and you got to connect the tube to that. Well, you got to make sure there's no air bubbles in that air line bubbles. or that you could stroke them out and kill them. And I was like, ah. and I remember every time I would go to do that, I would feel like the weight of the word on my shoulders at that yeah. moment saying, okay, Janet, don't screw up, make sure, do it right, get it right. You know, and sometimes another relative would be in, in the next room yelling into me going, make sure you do it right now. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, thanks for the pressure. So yeah. I'm sure people who have been in these situations they're, they're understanding what you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. It's so much responsibility. I can remember too, keeping logs about medications, right? Oh yes. Oh yes. You know, you had to write down because right. then the visiting nurse would come and want to see the log, especially when you get to the point where you have to give them pain, pain meds, right? The morphine and different things. I can remember you have to be very precise and you have to write down what you're doing and how often you're doing it. And then they check the log when they come and they talk to the patient and you, it's like, yikes. And some of this stuff you're doing in the middle of the night, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, and you're all by yourself. <laughs> so I think I just only wish I had a book like this to be sitting because sometimes you're just sitting by their bedside, right? Some of that you're all alone because they've dozed off to sleep, but you're watching to make sure they're okay. Right. Yeah. But a book like this, I mean, I, I, I love the way to, you have prayers. Okay. At the end of certain chapters is a prayer there's reflection questions for you to kind of ask yourself and have that chance to kind of talk to yourself a little bit <laughs> in the middle of the night when you're there all by yourself anyway. Um, and then what I'd like to, uh, Michelle, is explain where you got the idea to use the Stations of the Cross throughout the book as a, a reminder of what Jesus went through. Tell me about that whole insight when you wanted to use the stations of the cross. Cause I think that's, that really is, is the brilliant part of the book. You know, and, and the credit goes to the, our Lord because um, I was writing various chapters of this book for years, to be honest with you. I mean, I would write and then you get kind of overwhelmed because you have to relive the whole experience again. And you say, well, I'll do, I'll work on it later, you know? Um, right. And I couldn't really figure out exactly how I wanted to structure it. And one Good Friday, it was about seven years after my husband's death. Um, I was participating in the Stations of the Cross at church. And all of a sudden, all these different scenes from my husband's, you know, eight year journey started flashing across my mind. Just and my eyes filled up with tears. And I, I just, it just, it was an insight that I realized, my God, it really was walking the way of the cross. 
that's what it, you don't think that when you're going through it. I'm now walking away at the cross. Well, maybe somebody will now if they read the book. But I mean, I certainly didn't, you know, and I mean, but that that realization, I thought, that's it. You know, I mean, that's what what people need to see is that if we're going to do this right, we got to follow in his footsteps. And it was so much it all came together so much easier as soon as I started to write it like that. Right. You know, to take, to yeah. take the, the station, to group things under that as to, you know, kind of what was, how that sort of corresponded to what we would go through as a caregiver. And the prayers all relate to that. Um, I have a scripture quote, you know, before each chapter. And it's just, it was a gift. It was a gift, Janet. And to what you were saying, to what you were saying before, I mean, getting ready to do this is a decision. You have to decide. It's like love. Love is a decision. You know what I right. mean? Because you're going to go through bad times in, in love. In when, you, when you're married, you have to make a decision. Are you going to stick it out or not? And it's the same thing with caregiving. You have to decide. I've got some chapters in here. I've got one hanging on to hope and one you can do it. You can do this. Right. Um, and it and encourages people, you know, one thing that I think is most important right now, if you've just gotten a diagnosis, is it's it's very common to lose hope, to feel like, you know, the, in my experience, and I, I've said this before, most doctors are told, well, don't give the patients false hope. But in my experience, they take it to mean, don't give them any hope. And right. I remember at one point, you know, the doctor had just stomped all over my heart and I was really losing, you know, hope. And, you know, I called a friend um, and I never did that. You know what I mean? It wasn't something that I was comfortable usually doing. And normally I would have called my mom, but, you know, my dad had also died and I just didn't want her to get all upset that I was upset. Um, and I called a friend who had gone through it and who had said to me, you can call anytime. And you know, it wasn't what she said. It was just that she listened and she didn't judge. And as we talked, you know, because that's what you want then. You don't want somebody lecturing you on, you know, the catechism or something, you know, you know, just suck it up. You can, you want somebody that just listens and that, you know, has been through it. So be careful who you tell when you're going through this, because you need somebody who has an understanding ear. And right sometimes you just need to vent, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just, you just, and you need a little love and, and that's what I got. And that's what helped me get through the next steps. And you know, a lot of people too will identify with when you are saying, I'm going to help you the caregiver. Um, sometimes you still have to juggle your job with the caregiving oh too, because you got to keep the money coming in the house <laughs> to pay that the bills. Insurance. So, so you get torn by that. Then you get torn with, you know, everyone thinks, oh, you'll get a lot of help, but you don't get that much help. You maybe get an, a home attendant to come, uh, maybe if you're lucky, four hours a day, but never on the weekend, only Monday through Friday is what they'll allow. I guess they figure on the weekend, you could just punch, you'll be fine. Uh, not so. Um, and then I remember too, the sheer panic when the home attendant person that was assigned to you would just cancel that day because they were sick and the agency wouldn't necessarily send you anyone. So now you're, you're all by yourself. 
Maybe you were supposed to go to work for those few hours. And now what are you going to do? It, I always found the more stressful thing rather than taking care was the scrambling with the schedule and worrying about who was coming when and, and how, and then just the whole thing. It, it, it's exhausting, exhausting. And I think too, the, like you said too, Michelle, is very important. The medical profession are not 100% honest. And I think it's all this so happy stuff. So what they want to do is say, oh, it's going to, you know, they'll only be living a few months or whatever. They give you this like real deadline stuff. I've never once in all the people I've cared for over the years had one doctor be right. And right. I always say to them, they're going to go when God says it's time and not before. That's who decides. The Lord decides. And then our job as a caregiver is to make them as comfortable as possible, improve the quality of life as much as we can for them and be there for them. I mean, that's our job, right? And so that's why I think like, because some of it's kind of lonely. That's why I think your book, brothers and sisters, by the way, it's called Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers. And if you want to know where to get this great book, you can go to the EWTN Religious Catalog or Amazon. And I highly recommend it. Uh, it's just, a, you know, maybe you know someone who's going through this as a caregiver right now. This would be the best thing. When you say, oh, I wish there was something I could do to help them. Get them this book because that's what they need. They need something to kind of nurture them and, and refresh them a little bit in those hours that you spend in between the caregiving where you're just by their side and waiting and waiting. Right, Michelle? I mean, there's a lot of waiting that goes on in caregiving too, right? <laughs> oh, you can say that again, honey. I actually have a whole chapter about things you can do while you're, you know, while, while you're waiting or traveling, you know, a lot of times when things get really bad, um, you'll probably end up going to MD Anderson or the Mayo Clinic or one of the big places in an effort to save your loved one's life. And right. um, I mean, there's so many things to know. I mean, I, I talk about if you're going to go to one of those big hospitals, you're going to need all the records. If you haven't gotten them as you go, you, it's going to be harder. So right. whenever you go into a doctor's office and something's happened, get the record, x-rays, you know, CAT scans, right. MRIs, whatever. Um, but the whole chapter talks about everything from, you know, if you, if you have to stay in a hotel at one of these places, how to save money, how to, you know, is there a hotel connected to the hospital? We didn't even know that hat was available in many places. Right. And the good thing about that is they'll do a lot of the tests right in the lobby, you know? But I mean, I, I, I talk about the kinds of uh, things you should look for and the things you can do while you're waiting. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, I, I remember feeling yeah. we were we traveled down to MD Anderson and it was a 10 hour drive, not including stops. So we usually, wow. would, you know, it, it was long and, yeah. you know, and I was trying to work, you know, on my computer in the car. And I mean, it was we would sometimes stop. We would try to get into a restaurant where I could get an internet connection. I mean, it was, it was, right. but, but we learned to do things. Like I remember my husband, we would um, turn on the music and he loved to pretend he was directing, you know, the orchestra, um, just silly things, you know, how right. if you're going to read, read something light, read something fun because it's all so heavy, you know, I mean, right. something that will take you away from where you are. If you have a hobby, you know, figure out what you can do. If you if you if you get a hotel where they have a little gym or if they have an outdoor area where you can take a walk, it's great to get outside the hospital walls. You oh, know? absolutely. <laughs> I know that. 
<laughs> but you know, another thing that I think is important when you get to that point where, you know, you're, that you've brought them home to die, as you know, that you get to that point where the medical profession says, well, this is it, you know, this is it. No, no more treatment, blah, blah. <clears throat> I can remember with um, my mother, one of the things I did on my shift, um, I would start asking her about our family tree. And I took this giant manila folder uh, and a ruler I had and a pencil and I started drawing the family tree. And then I would go back, see how far she could go back. <clears throat> and then I would ask her, well, tell me about that, that great grandma. Tell me about that great grandma. Uh, what did she do? You know, what was her life like? I found out some of the most crazy, incredible things. Like <laughs> I had a great grandmother who was a seamstress for the Roosevelt family. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I found out like all these intricate little details, you know, about relatives. And I'm the only person in the entire family that has this, this thing. And I'm still trying to figure out how to, I'm going to have to bring it to some place where they have a giant copy machine to copy it. And like I said, it's not something you would frame, but just for the knowledge that she was able to share these stories. So I think another thing for caregivers is let them share the stories, let yeah. them tell you, you know, especially too, if people are suffering from dementia, oh, their short term memory is shot. They can't even tell you if you had breakfast that morning, yeah. but ask them what happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they can tell you exactly. And with my dad <clears throat> who suffered with dementia, besides a bunch of other things that we took care of him for, he was in World War II. He told me so many stories about General Patton that it was pretty incredible because he was in the Third Army. Wow. So you know, all I'm saying is, you know, there can be as hard as caregiving is, you should take these little moments, these little golden nuggets, and use them as opportunities. Um, I can remember another relative uh, we were with, and we got a cookie recipe, a family cooker recipe <laughs> out of her before she died. And and my friend still to this day says, you know, Janet, if you hadn't told me to ask my grandmother about those that cookie recipe, it would have went with her. It would have gone forever. But my mother and I stood by her side and we reminded her, now tell us, Grandma, how do we make those cookies? And she was near her death. And yeah. she just went hold back and say, you do this and you do this. So I think the point here is for people who are caregivers, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. But there's golden moments. Mm -hmm. Don't lose those golden moments, right? And, you know, speaking about those things, that's brilliant, asking about the, uh, the family tree. Another thing to do that I do mention in the book is when someone dies, um, what happens a lot is there are regrets where people will say, you know, I didn't say I was sorry, or, you know, I didn't forgive them for something, or, you know, I didn't thank them for something. And I have a friend who actually, she had said to me before my husband died, she goes, make sure that you, you forgive each other for anything that you've ever done. And she said, my husband and I, she said, I felt so strongly about it that we, they wrote it down on a piece of paper and signed it. And she said, nice. no way, anytime she thought about it later, she could go to that piece of paper and go, that's right. We forgave each other, you know, right. and, I thought that was yeah. and, and even if they're unconscious, I always tell people, talk to them. They uh, many times, even though they're unconscious, they can still hear you. They yes. hear what you're saying and, and don't make the room quiet, have music playing and then talk to them, make it as alive as possible. So, um, but again, the, the wonderful, wonderful book is walking the way of the cross for caregivers, 
available at Amazon or the EWTN Religious Catalog. I have my copy and anyone, you want to do something for any friend who's being a caregiver right now, this is the best gift you could give them. Uh, when you say, oh, I wish I could do something for them. <clears throat> this book will be a companion for them as they go through these next months and weeks ahead. So Michelle, <clears throat> I really want to thank you <clears throat> for joining me today. And um, I just wish, uh, like I said, everybody would get the book because I only wish I had it in all those circumstances I've gone through in my life. I, I know it would have been a real help, but God forbid I have to do this in the future. I've got my handy dandy guide <laughs> to get through it one, one more time. So blessings on this brilliant book. And like I said, I hope people take advantage of it and get it, uh, this book, either on Amazon or EWTN. So thanks, Michelle, for joining me today. Thank you so much, sweetheart. God bless you. God bless you. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you found this discussion helpful because, you know, end of life issues are very important. And we as believers have a path we take. We want to help our loved ones. And then, of course, when the final moment comes and they do pass, uh, the next part also is a little difficult, planning the funeral and all that. So a book like Michelle's, I know, will be a blessing in your life. So thank you for joining me on our program today. And as always, it's Janet Marana, Executive Director of Priest for Life. Until next time, God bless. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.